Bond, James Bond. Highly trained Russian sleeper agents inserted into American society to sabotage and assassinate. Supposedly, they'd wait years to strike, decades even. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. For years, popular culture has been full of stories about spies. But of course, spies existed in the real world too. And now, just like everything else, those spies have gone high tech. Today, we're talking specifically about cyber spies and a recent attack that just may be the biggest espionage campaign to have hit our country in recent memory. Russian government hackers are reportedly behind a months-long cyber attack targeting several U.S. agencies. This company, this private company, SolarWinds, that the hackers used uh, to get into these uh, networks, there were 18,000 customers. So there's a potential for many of them uh, to be compromised. We don't know the full extent of the damage right. done, not just to our government agencies, national security, but to corporations as well. What you need to know about this massive hack and what government and business needs to do to stop it from happening again. That's all ahead on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. everyone, welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. One of the guests we interviewed for this episode called the attack we're talking about today the cyber coup of the century. A member of the Senate Intelligence Committee went so far as to say it may be the greatest cyber intrusion in the history of the world. I'm guessing a lot of our listeners know it simply as the solar winds hack, though it's becoming clear that that's a bit of a misnomer. There are actually many more companies involved. Michal, what do you remember uh, or when do you remember first hearing about this hack? It's kind of fuzzy, actually, because I, I first heard about it at a time when there was so much other stuff going on in the news. You know, we've had a pretty busy few months here in the United States. So I perked up when I realized uh, just how many government agencies had been infiltrated. That's a huge cause for concern. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting and, and, and unique here is that there were quite a few cybersecurity vendors that were hacked. So those are all frightening. Yeah, I had sort of the same reaction. I mean, I and I think a lot of people did, right? I mean, the news came out when we had this extended election drama. And of course, COVID is, you know, hanging over everybody and everything. And the way the news has come out, there were the, the first alarming headlines. But because new details have continued to sort of trickle out, it may have been hard for the person quickly scanning the news to really pick up on number one, just how serious this is, and two, the long-term implications it holds, not just for our government, but for business. Right. And I think the fact that a lot of the terms involved here, like spyware and malware and backdoors, just to name a few, this might cause the non-cyber person out there to just kind of glaze over. But that's where we come in. We're going to spend the first part of this episode just laying out what the attack was, how it happened, and what's at stake. And then we'll move on to discussing how we can potentially stop this from happening again. Yeah, we're going to hack into all of our listeners' brains and make them understand (laughs) this topic. Let's start with Fortune writer David Z. Morris. He, along with Fortune's Robert Hackett, have just written a big feature on the topic for the magazine. So SolarWinds is a company that creates uh, IT management software, which includes some cybersecurity elements, but mostly it's the big picture of how do you manage your network if you're a corporation and you have an office and people are communicating within your building or now increasingly work from home. SolarWinds manages that 
through a piece of software called Orion. And what happened was someone was able to get into SolarWinds systems and implant spyware in an update patch for this software called Orion. And we're now learning that there was more to it than that, that the same group was attacking through other pathways. But this is the one that people are really focused on because it's so scary. Because this came in through a software patch, none of the standard defenses that detect hacks on a corporate or any other network were able to see it. The initial spyware that went in through the Orion patch was just watching. But through that watching, you can do things like steal credentials and in other ways, leverage yourself into other systems and potentially even place further malware on other systems. And so it's this, you get in through one door and then you can expand very quickly out. So the phrase you hear again and again here is that this was a supply chain hack. David introduced that idea, but I asked Dmitry Alperovich for some more details. He's chair of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, a think tank, and he's the founder and previous CTO of CrowdStrike, which is a large cybersecurity company. So when you think about a way that you can hack into organization, you can sort of go directly at it by spear phishing their employees, getting them to click on links or open up attachments that would enable you to get into the company by essentially having an employee open up a back door on their own machine. Or you can find some vulnerability that you can target um, by looking at their online presence, uh, be it um, web servers or other applications that they're exposing online. Or you can find another way in, which is to look at the vendors that they use, both software vendors and otherwise that have direct access to their network. It could be contractors, it could be people that you uh, purchase software from that runs at high levels of privileges on the network. So SolarWinds was one such company that provides network monitoring technology to over 300,000 organizations around the world, including government agencies and Fortune 500 companies and the like. And what the adversaries did in this case is they were able to infiltrate SolarWinds as a first step, get to their build server um, that compiles and, and builds their software, and inject at runtime a backdoor into the code that SolarWinds builds and sends out to their customers so that when the customers would update that software, that backdoor would eventually activate, call out to the bad guys, and through that backdoor, they would be able to jump into the network and, and start leveraging that access. And of course, the irony here is that all of these companies and government agencies thought they were helping their network security by downloading this software patch. That's the message that's been drilled into us for years and years. And that's the explanation of how the hack happened. But this is also a good time to talk about who has been impacted by the hack, because there's estimates that 18,000 or more different entities could be involved here. And we're talking about big tech companies like Cisco and Microsoft, and also major government agencies like the Department of Defense and the Department of the Treasury. And Brian, while we're on the topic of who, we should also talk about who did this. There's general consensus that at this point, at least, that it was Russia, specifically SRV, the Russian Cyber Intelligence Espionage Unit. Right. So we're talking about a state actor, not some run-of-the-mill cyber criminal here who's you know, having fun in the dark web and trying to extort some money. Of course, Russia has denied this, and we don't yet have conclusive proof, but there's a lot of reasons to believe that because of the nature of the attack and what they were going after, which was these emails, intelligence, information. 
So that would contrast with, for example, if somebody had stolen a bunch of credit cards or social security numbers or something like that, then we would have more reason to believe that it was cyber criminals, people who were just looking to sell account information on the dark web or something like that, where they can make a quick buck. But because this attack was focused on email information, that's a, a one good reason to believe that it was a state actor of some sort. Dimitri agrees that Russia's behind this. He actually reminded me that back in 2015, Russia managed to infiltrate the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department. But they were caught pretty quickly, like within a few days. So he thinks they've been planning this attack ever since, that they worked hard to come up with a stealthier way into our systems. And he wasn't surprised that they managed to succeed. Like David, he said the data that they accessed was exactly what you would expect a foreign state actor to target. So none of that is surprising. What is um, surprising is the scale, how many targets there are, how many ways of access. And that presents enormous challenges for government agencies and, and companies alike to actually do investigations to determine if, if anything was stolen, what was stolen, and doing a full remediation. And that's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, and uh, take enormous amount of time. We're talking months, potentially even years. Um, to get to all the different networks that these guys have, have infiltrated. And that impact is, is going to be very, very substantial as a result. Now, in terms of the data that was stolen, so far, we have not seen any indication that that data would be leaked. And uh, traditionally, even though we've seen other threat actors in Russia uh, do public leaks, of course, um, namely the GRU in 2016 elections, but SVR has traditionally not done that. And they've been focused mostly on intelligence collection for the purposes of educating policymakers in, in Russia. So um, no evidence that that data would be used against us in any way other than traditional espionage. In some ways, I suppose that you could look at this as reassuring, Michal. It's classic espionage that clearly is a problem for the government and for a number of big companies, but it doesn't seem to have an immediate direct impact on the average person. Yeah, that's something I actually asked Dimitri about. So in light of everything that you're saying, for the layperson, for everyday citizens, what do you say about you know if and why they should care about a campaign like this, an attack like this going on? Well, for everyday citizen, I would say forget that this is cyber and think about uh, what would happen if you woke up to the news tomorrow that the Russian intelligence services have infiltrated spies into many government agencies, including the most sensitive government agencies we have, like Department of Justice and the military and so forth, Treasury Department, and we're able to access emails, we're able to steal documents, including on very sensitive issues, and how you would feel as a citizen of this country that they were able to orchestrate a, an incredible intelligence coup from a cyber perspective, certainly the coup of the century. That is very troubling. This falls under the realm of what countries do to each other, but it doesn't mean that we should like it. And it's sort of a a good on them, shame on us type of situation. And we need to look hard at our own defenses and, and think about what can we do to make sure this ne never happens again. Yeah, I think there's a real sense of violation here, especially when you consider the fact that all the experts basically agree that it was the Russians who perpetrated this attack. And we've spent the past four years worrying and debating about the Russians hacking our election. And then in the background, while we were having this next election, the Russians were penetrating the defenses of our biggest, most sophisticated companies, our major federal government entities. And 
it just makes you wonder about how secure you know anybody's data is or our trade secrets are on the web or even in our own computer systems. And this was a, a really sophisticated operation that you know, by all accounts, took a lot of time and resources and was planned out far in advance. I think we can only assume that we're going to continue to see this kind of sophistication with outside actors trying to to break into our cyber systems. Yeah, you know, it was very sophisticated, but it also, on the other hand, seems like a little bit too easy. I mean, the fact that they were able to get into all sorts of companies and then their customers and other, you know, more and more databases and more and more government agencies is just frightening. So I think the big question is what's next, because this is going to keep happening. So we heard a lot of agreement from our guests in this episode around what needs to be done to improve our cyber defenses. And let's go back to Fortune's David Morris to hear more. It's important to understand that when we talk about, you know, the U.S. having room to improve in its cybersecurity practices, we are still well ahead of most of the world. This is an emerging field in general, and everybody is still figuring it out. One of my sources who I spoke to for the story, Katie Masuris, a very respected cybersecurity professional of, of many, many years, said that we're losing our lead, which is a good way to characterize it. We, we're still in the lead, but we're losing it. And there are a few specific reasons for that. One of the big ones that I was shocked by, probably the most shocking thing that I found in my story, is that we don't have strong systems in place for information sharing between the various groups that are involved in cybersecurity. The cybersecurity players are largely private intelligence companies. So FireEye, which discovered this hack, is one of those private entities. And there are no rules forcing those entities or you know even providing a good method for those entities to publicly disclose information about attacks of this scale from state actors. So the experts that I talked to included people who are involved in what's called the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. They have laid out a bunch of recommendations for how we can react to shortfalls. And this this predated solar winds, but this is stuff that people saw coming. Um, And one of the big ones is setting up some form of information sharing that would, A, provide incentives and maybe even mandates for private cybersecurity companies to uh, share their intelligence with government agencies um, in a structured way. We need to systematize that by making clear formal rules for when one of these private companies needs to share this information with the government because their business model doesn't necessarily give them the incentives to do that on their own. Most of the time, to some degree, these people, these these companies make money by selling information to uh, the cybersecurity departments of corporations. And so in, to some degree, they're disincentivized from sharing information when they discover something really big with the public because they are paid to, to share that information only with their customers. So in the current system, that's a that's a definite disconnect. I want to bring a new voice in here. Suzanne Spaulding is a senior advisor for cybersecurity at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and formerly ran cybersecurity infrastructure in the Department of Homeland Security. She also hit on the need for improved and increased communication. 
I do think in a number of ways, we need, we need some aspects of our cybersecurity approach to be more centralized. So I'm a member of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, a commission that Congress established to develop a better strategy, a comprehensive strategy for improving our position in cyberspace. And um, one of the things we call for is the creation of a national cyber director at the White House, because cybersecurity activity is inevitably dispersed across our federal government. And it really has to be because there are all, so many different aspects and cyber can't be removed in many instances from the mission or the sector expertise that resides across government. And so you need strong coordination then of these efforts that have to take place in a kind of, if you will, sort of disparate way. You know, eventually what we'd like to get to is to a point where, you know, when an adversary goes after one target and is detected at that one target, that everybody now has that information and the adversary can't use that same uh, technique for any other target, right? That would dramatically raise the costs for our adversaries so that they couldn't do something like this uh, hack apparently did, which is to use the same technique and the same uh, procedures and, and malware and infrastructure against multiple, multiple targets. So you mentioned, you know, the recommendation of having a cybersecurity czar, uh, so to speak, reporting to the president. If President Biden creates such an office, what would be their first order of business? I mean, you outlined some of the steps we could take, but what could they really do near term to, you know, make some concrete improvements? Because it's going to take a while. You imagine all these different agencies in coordinating sounds good to say, we'll put somebody in charge, but that's a lot of moving parts. That's exactly right. So I think the administration, I mean, the administration has made it clear they do intend to establish this position. And in fact, Congress enacted legislation to require that this position be established. So it will be established. Uh, who that's going to be hasn't been uh, formally announced yet. But I do think that the first order of business should be to do kind of a damage assessment, if you will. The most important thing we need to do urgently is to mitigate the harm that will come from the hacking activity that has already happened. So that means we need to prioritize getting our arms around the scope and scale of this intrusion, which we still don't have. Uh, certainly we don't have in the from the private sector yet. And understanding, bringing the folks together that, that need to understand what could Russia do with the access that it had? So I think about this. I was at CIA for a number of years and, and worked with the intelligence community over most of my career. And when you catch a human spy, the first thing you do is to figure out how you mitigate the damage that that spy may have done, right? Do we have assets overseas we need to exfiltrate? You know, do, did they hand over weapons systems information that our fighters on the front line need to know that the adversary now knows, for example, what that capability is, et cetera. And that's the kind of assessment we need to be doing right now. What are the worst things Russia could do with the information that it has? And how do we mitigate the possibility of that? And that's not a, a network question. That's understanding yeah. your mission essential functions if you're government and your business uh, essential functions if you're a business, for example. So if somebody's listening to this or you know reading about this story and they find out that all of our government agencies have been potentially hacked to some degree and all these companies how alarmed should they be that <laughs> this seemed to have gone on for a while before it was detected and it was kind of detected a little bit by accident we're a little lucky that it was detected when it was and that it didn't 
go on? I mean, should we feel like, wow, the, the system as spread out and uncoordinated as it is really failed us? Or was this inevitable? You know, is this something that we almost needed to kind of force some dramatic steps to harden our approach? I think it's both. Uh-huh. I really do. I think there are, and, and the investigations are underway and those are important. I'm sure we will find that there are things we could have done to either prevent this from happening at all, prevent the spread, prevent the scale and scope, et cetera, um, detect it sooner. And those will help us to assess, you know, where can we build more tripwires? We need more tripwires. We are still not detecting these kinds of things quickly enough, right? I do believe that a determined adversary, we should assume they're gonna overcome whatever defensive technology you have in place. And now you're looking at how do you prevent them from doing damage? And that's important, obviously, both to try to sustain the goods and services that the American public relies upon every day, right? But it also deters the adversary. If we can make it clear that you, you know, Russia, China, whoever, are not going to get the bang for the buck that you're looking for, and we've raised the costs, and we've made it harder for you to do it, and we're going to impose some kind of consequences, you can begin to alter, I think, your adversary's cost-benefit analysis. That all makes sense to me. I'm just kind of curious, when you talk about the cost, let's say it's the Russians who are doing this, right? Strikes me as, I mean, I, I don't know the details of what it really cost them to to groom the talent for this, but it strikes me as like a relatively small investment for potentially a huge payoff. Well, to some degree it is. I suspect that this this is a pretty sophisticated attack that they pulled off. And I suspect that it took them a good deal of time and effort to get in a position to be able to do this. So that is a cost. And again, that alone, because they're determined, and, and as you say, the payoff for them is potentially huge, right? Mm. So they're going to they're gonna go through that cost because they get this great payoff. If their payoff was less, now because we've built resilience, not only have we built tripwire, so we're going to catch it quick, more quickly, which limits their ability to accomplish what they want to accomplish. But we've built not just a hardened target, but a more resilient target, one that is prepared to, you know, shift gears and, and again, do things both technically and non-technical. I keep coming back to, to reduce the benefits. So I come back often to our election infrastructure. We were worried about cyber attacks on the election infrastructure. Do that damage assessment. What is the damage that a Russia could do penetrating our election infrastructure? The damage is reducing public confidence in the legitimacy of the outcome. So how are we going to mitigate the ability to reduce public confidence? Paper ballots is a huge part of that. That's one of the primary reasons that we pushed for paper ballots because it is a way of restoring American confidence in the legitimacy of the election. those That's the kind of thinking that needs to go on across government and business. What is the worst you know, disruption that a cyber incident could have? And now how are we gonna mitigate that disruption? And then you know, to the extent that we can make clear to our adversaries that we have become more resilient, we make it, we, we alter their benefit analysis. So that idea of building resilient systems transitions us into the next big idea for reform. After improving communication, we also need to rethink how we design our cyber defenses in the first place. 
Here's what Dimitri said when I asked if he thought we would see another attack like this. Until we change our strategy, which up till this point for the last 30 years has been to literally build walls around our networks to try to detect things coming in, you know, whether it's phishing attacks or vulnerabilities um, that are inherent in our software. And that's all good and well and good, but um, the reality is we will never catch everything. And we need to start shifting more and more towards a model where we assume breach, we assume someone capable is gonna get in. You assume that they are in there, and then you hunt for them on, on the network to determine if anything malicious is going on. That's how we're gonna be able to be successful at limiting damage, discovering adversaries quickly, kicking them out before any damage is done. And more and more needs to be, more and more effort needs to be focused on that. Just like we do in counterintelligence, in traditional counterintelligence, we assume as a course of doing business that there are spies at any given moment in time that have been implanted by our adversaries inside of our government agencies. And we actively seek them out. We actively seek to disrupt their operations and, and arrest them whenever possible. We need to be doing the exact same thing in cyber. And Fortune's David Morris pointed out that moving to this assume breach mindset is going to be expensive for companies. I think the, the most applicable insight I got from my reporting was there is an ongoing push within software design and cybersecurity towards building software from the ground up with tighter controls on who has access to what parts of it. The reason that this hack was so bad is because of this web of interconnections between almost all kinds of software that allows people to move their security privileges from one part of a piece of software to another or from one piece of software to another through a variety of tactics. So the assumption in cybersecurity and software design circles is shifting around where the emphasis or, or where cybersecurity really takes place. The default is to think of it as something where you defend your borders. You try and keep people from getting into, you know, as, a, as an individual, you try and keep somebody from getting into your computer. As a company, you try and prevent somebody from getting into your network. But now, the emphasis is shifting and people are looking more into what's called zero trust software. And that is, we're still figuring out exactly what it means. But the basic idea is you keep actors from moving between different parts of your system once they're already inside. You assume breach is the phrase that I heard again and again. You assume that somebody is going to get into your network, but you build that network and the systems on it in such a way that prevents them from moving from one part to another as easily as they can now. In a lot of software systems that we have right now, you just compromise one thing and then you can get everybody's email, you can get their data, you can just move around freely and get whatever you want, you can go shopping. But with zero trust software, there's more ability to control movement between different parts of a network and different parts of software. The downside is that this zero trust architecture is much more expensive to build and it loses some of the advantages of convenience that we've gotten used to. But that I think is the direction that as an individual company, that's something that you can control is to implement more zero trust architecture to create more barriers between the different systems on your servers. And a lot of the software doesn't exist yet. So it's also something that is going to be a long term project and again, high cost. But that is one thing that, that companies can look at and, and move towards. Sticking with the focus on companies for a minute, I was really struck by this exchange I had with Suzanne. 
When you're talking to corporate leaders about these issues and how government can better coordinate with their cybersecurity teams, what's effective when you're talking with them? What's the language you speak to get them to buy in and understand what's needed? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I realized early on was that CEOs and boards can quickly become intimidated or bored with the technical aspects of cyber. And so then they cede the whole risk management uh, to their technical folks. And so what I tell them is, look, this is an exercise in risk management. You do risk management every single day, all day. That's what you do. And you know that. And you understand how to do that. What this is about is less about the technical aspects of your network than it is about your ability to assess and manage the risks that cyber poses to your business operations, not to your network, to your business. And nobody knows your business better than you do. So you have to be part of that you know, effort to bring your operations people, your marketing people, your financial people, your legal people, et cetera, together to say, okay, what are the greatest risks to our business? Mm -hmm. Just put cyber aside. What are the greatest risks to our business? Now, which of these could be caused by or exacerbated by a cyber incident? And then how would you, all of you, non-technical people, help mitigate the harm that could come from that? And, and when you begin to talk to them in terms that they're used to, right? This is about your business operations. It's not just about your computer networks. Then they can play the role that only they can play, right? Mm -hmm. And then they, they are much better positioned to allocate resources, et cetera. You know, it strikes me, Brian, that so much of these issues that we're having kind of boil down to communication and the lack of communication I know that there are serious technological <laughs> issues and weaknesses, obviously, but if the right structure was in place for communication to happen more effectively and much earlier, not only between companies, but on the public and private side together, I, I just have to wonder, you know, at least how much earlier we would have found out about this. Absolutely. And there, there's kind of a, a great irony about this whole thing I mean, in the U.S., Created the internet, and uh, you know, it's so much the leading uh, sophisticated tech power in the world in so many ways. Still, yet the system we have has kind of grown up haphazardly, and it's this public-private loose partnership, and that creates this vulnerability to a, a really purpose-driven state actor who wants to do things. You're never going to keep them out. There's going to be attacks coming in, and there has to be this greater communication and a new way of coordinating so that we can limit the damage and really have a more effective response. Well, I hope this was the wake-up call that we all needed, Brian. Yeah, before we go, I sent you an email, so I just want you to click on that link and type in some information, and uh, <laughs> we'll be good to go. Wait a minute, are you a Nigerian prince? No, no, I'm here to help. Got it. All right, that's it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media, our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. On the one and the two and the one and the two. Anybody remember Lawrence Welk?
Literally never heard of him. <laughs> Sorry. He wasn't big in Israel, I guess. No. 